Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Todd Haynes. Well, congratulations. It's quite, Thank it's you. just an amazing achievement. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I mean, one thing it really does is capture what is special about Dylan's music, which I think so many of us probably have had the experience of turning to his music at important times in our lives and yeah. sort of ser- when you're searching for something. Um, tell us what Dylan's music had meant to you, because I mean, I'm assuming there was a long conne- a connection to it early on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> well, I was, I, was, I was a fan first in, in high school. Uh, this was the late, mid-late mid, 70s in L.A., and, uh, you know, I loved the records that most people love, Blonde on Blonde and Bringing, bringing It All Back Home and uh, Blood on the Tracks. <clears throat> and, uh, and I remember, you know, the releases of, um, I think I remember Desire. That might have been the very first one that I was sort of present for. <laughs> definitely Street Legal and definitely Slow Train Coming. And that was the first time I actually saw Dylan in concert with <laughs> that tour uh, kicking off his sort of gospel period. And then I kind of um, stopped listening to Dylan for a while. I mean, I just listened to other kinds of music and got yeah. into different kinds of things in college and thereafter. And then I sort of found myself, as you kind of suggested um, or intimated, suddenly hungering for Dylan at a time in my life where I think I needed to be reminded um, about something that I, I associated with that early, early, earlier part of my life and a kind of fearlessness and a kind of um, uh, devil-may-care quality in his voice, in his music, in his whole attitude that I think I needed at the end of my 30s as a reminder that change yeah. is good and change is necessary in your life and it can really help you, you know, move forward or make changes when you, when you need them. And those are harder things to remember as you get older. It's a lot easier when you're young. It makes a lot of sense. You made a big change. I mean, all of us were sorry to see you move out of Brooklyn, <laughs> out of Williamsburg to Portland. And we said, "What was going? What is going on here?" But, but um, was that about the time when you? It started was exactly at that time. Yeah, and the in, the resurged interest in Dylan was some kind of symptom of of something that was about to happen that I really didn't even see coming. But uh, I was just dry. I was just going to go to Portland, where my sister lived, to go write my last the script to my last film, Far From Heaven, and get away from the city and you know be somewhere pretty. And and so, but Dylan was this this obsession during every every day. And I and I and I made all these. I remember making these cassette tapes. Probably the last time I made a series of cassette tapes for the drive cross country. And when I landed in Portland, I I started writing Far From Heaven by night. Bruce Greenwood, everybody. Okay. Mr. Jones and um, Commissioner Garrett, please, Sorry. Bruce Greenwood. A surprise, surprise guest, but thank you for coming. <laughs> you could ask all the questions as Mr. Jones if you want. Exactly, or Pat Garrett, depending right. on his mood. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was in this in this um, period where I was going out there to basically do something else mm-hmm. that the Dylan obsession kind of emerged almost 
on the side, you know, yeah. not unexpectedly. Now, you had made two films where you were dealing with uh, the whole question of music rights and real, real musicians, Karen Carpenter being the f- famous example, and then David Bowie and Velvet Goldmine, where you didn't have the official rights. So this, here's a, a case where you actually went to Dylan. I mean, you, what was sort of the, the process? You came up with the idea, then decided I better check with Mr. Dylan? Yeah, there was absolutely no <laughs> – well, there was no way to even – begin to conceive of doing this without the rights to the music. There was no way to do the film with pseudo Dylan songs or <laughs> fake Dylan songs. But, uh, and I, I, because of exactly what you said, I had absolutely no, no valid reason to expect we would get them. I mean, just nothing at all. And it was all right. I was just in this sort of weird sort of free play of, 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 of loving that music and getting so into it and reading the biographies and immersing myself in it. And I had this idea that I thought was really interesting, but but um, I really had no expectations. I talked to Christine about it on the phone, Christine Vashon, my, my producer and friend, and she said, look, don't write anything yet. What, you never know. You just have absolutely no idea. Why don't we just take it a step at a time? And she brought up Jesse Dillon, who's Dillon's oldest son, <clears throat> and who was who's a filmmaker, director. And he lived in L.A., and she said, look, when we're both in L.A., why don't we try to meet up with Jesse Dillon and, and, and just see. We'll just sort of suss it out. And I had a feeling Jesse would like meeting Christine, indie producer, oh, yeah. right? Very you know, good. it made Very sense. Yeah. So we did that. <laughs> we went to L.A. We met with Jesse. He was this incredibly lovely guy and seemed so well-adjusted, like talking about his dad, you know, like, and I think it's one thing about Dillon, whatever you say about his, you know, romantic record or marriage history or whatever or, or you know, He's been a really protective father. He's really tried to keep those kids out of the, the glare of, of it all. And Jeff Rosen was on the line in his office, Dylan's longtime manager, um, on that meeting. And I described the concept. And they were both intri- interested in it. But they said that means absolutely nothing that we think so. And Jeff said, why don't you write it down on a one-sheet piece of paper? And, you know, and Jeff told me all these things to not say voice of a generation and not say... <laughs> genius and don't say and uh, it was I remember feeling like they were just like don't oh and don't do that and don't do this and don't so I, I managed to write something out and sent it to Dylan with my through Jeff with some DVDs now you had uh, you actually even before superstar you made a film assassins based on inspired by Arthur Rambeau's poetry mm-hmm. so is it true that you pulled the Rambeau card and writing to Dylan Pulled the Rambo. Well, you mentioned you used Rambo. Oh, quote on, the, from Rambo. on the top of the thing. I, on this one page, this, this one. Yeah, page. no, it started with the subtext. I is another Arthur Rambo, and a quote um, from to, uh, to Anthony Scaduto's first biography. He yeah. um, challenged identities every step of the way by refusing identity or something, like, something about identity and the, yeah. the, the sort of worldly gig. So, so Dylan sort of accepted the idea that there would be a film that was supposedly about him, but that would be in this freestyle that was not a pure biopic. I mean, was, Clearly. It fits, obviously, with what his music's all about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's this, in, in, you know, innately and, and fundamentally open kind of approach to a traditional biography film. It had, clearly, because it described, you know, the Woody character as an 11-year-old black kid who calls himself Woody Guthrie, described but It actually said on this one description of Jude that the character Kate Blanchett would end up playing, that this would be portrayed by a woman and that this character would resemble the actual Dylan more than any other in the film. So there was, which I had forgotten, I'd even uh, thought about at that time, that specifically. So he knew that there was going to be a sense of irreverence and humor 
in the approach, you know. And I think these are things that he doesn't really get a lot of in, in the way people treat him and regard him. And was the script written in a kind of free um, style, in the spirit of, that you were writing it in, where you didn't worry so much at the time about how you would actually get this produced? I mean, because I, I remember following the project as it was going along, and I know it took a while for the financing, the actual production to come together. Yeah, it took a long time, but that wasn't because the script was like written in an open style. It was actually written so close to what the film would be, right? I mean, it really, you read it, or yeah. you, you yeah. tried to read it. It was remarkable. It was, but it was really hard to, I mean, it was probably really hard to read it, I would think. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't that hard, but it required a second read for sure. Because yeah. a lot of the descriptive narrative, as much as there was in the script, you, you couldn't begin to get a get a bead on how many layers of visual information there was going to be when Todd put it together. Yeah, and it was like it was. I, I tend to get very detailed when I'm writing because it's sort of yeah. like my own blueprint for what I'm envisioning. But it doesn't mean that. Uh, but I knew that the sort of rhythm and the musical elements of the film, and even the the lightness in a way yeah. of the film that I really ne- felt needed to be there wasn't going to come through on the page. So could you talk about the casting process? Because after, of course, after the incredible success of Far From Heaven, and lots of actors must want to, you know, at that time, wanted to work with you and want to be involved with this project. I, yeah, I guess that's why. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I was very, I was really thrilled because I yeah. did, I really went to who I thought were the very best possible people in, for each of these roles. And everybody wanted to take a part, you know, take part in great i mean these are you know even even in casting like i wanted a movie star for the role of richard uh, richard gears character billy i wanted somebody who who carried a little miniature history of american film and the lines on his face you know and and yet richard gear was totally into this he was so interested in what all the ideas that had originated had gone into creating that story he even gave me a book at his house one day. He's a great photographer, Richard, and he gave me a book of this photographer, Meat Yard, mm. which I hadn't—I didn't know his work. And uh, and it was exact. It was so precisely what the feeling of the Billy story should be. We actually ended up copying some of the masks in those Meat Yard photographs mm. that you see the kids wearing in, in the Riddle story. And um, how did you get cast? Did, were you specifically looking for the, at, at this? This is a very key role, actually. It's one of the most important non-Bob Dylan roles of Jones because you really the interrogation really gets at a lot of the key issues in the film well yeah I don't know how I was cast Todd called me and I <laughs> said yes before he'd finished half a sentence <laughs> right you just called me in LA oh, I and I don't know how you got my number well, I mean I, I didn't I, even know you, I mean <laughs> so I've changed it since see we had <laughs> we had so many like you know name stars in the film and I sort of thought okay I'm not going to be able to get you know, I should, I'll just find a local person in Montreal for Mr. Jones, which is an incredibly important part, but I just couldn't. Yeah. But the schedule had already been put around these, these actors and their, and their schedules. And then, and then we, I was talking to Laura one day, and we were talking about Bruce. And I was like, oh, my God, Bruce would be the most. But I was like, he would never do this. I mean, because, <laughs> well, no, I just thought, I just thought this, it was a secondary role. It was a, a, a what? nasty <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I didn't. That's what I, uh, uh, in the primary sense of the word, in a primary sense of the word, 
No, um, but it was a nasty <laughs> schedule. It was because you ha- you kind of can't. You I, I was go. shuttling back and forth from LA, and I just thought, how could he, he wouldn't be able to squeeze into your schedule? And why would he want to? And why you know? But I wanted somebody really strong opposite Kate in in those scenes, and I wanted a real foil for for the character of Jude. And obviously, it was written that way. It was yeah. someone with intelligence and, and uh, not a um, an, a simple. You know, symbol of the establishment that that the counterculture had constructed. You know, and and what did you base the performance on the characterization? Um, well, we talked about a, a couple of different um, BBC interviewers. Um, uh, David Frost. Oh, we, yeah. we sort of pulled out of the ether and and had a little bit of his hair going on for a while, and then kind of gave up on that. And and um, but I guess it was an amalgam of a few people we've both seen over over the years. Um, but we really, remember we decided it wouldn't be like the, the guys in, 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 people say it's, isn't it based on those journalists and don't look no, back. No. Yeah, but no. And it was not going to be that. It was not going to be like an out of touch, like fuddy-duddy, like English No, we didn't guy. want a guy who was, who was repressed and super uptight. And, yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Hair seems to be really important to you in finding characterizations. I remember you showed up at the museum once um, in a 70s glam rock hair like a few years before Velvet Goldmine, it was like you were doing, I don't know, getting into the part. And I also understand that Kate Blanchett, I mean, the hair was important for her. Sort of. Yeah, hair is really important. Hair is a, hair is power. Hair, hair, I mean, but really, the beard was, seriously, the beard was... Oh, a, the beard was, was so great. Even that hair was, I mean, yeah. when you get, when you're talking about hair, <laughs> you know, you put that on, there's four pounds of it, and then you put, literally, I mean... Yeah. And, uh, and then you put the beard on, but the beard is kind of like mask work, you know. And if any of you are actors, you know, when you put a mask on, the first thing you do is you look in the mirror, and whatever whatever feeling you get from that mask is something that you go with. So I did that and messed around with that a little bit, and then figured out which parts of the beard would interfere with the way my face moves, so avoid doing that, and then find some kind of humanity underneath that. I mean, it really actors work with all of these elements to to ultimately um, consolidate a character, and and it's a and it's a cyclical process for a while, and then it finally settles. But it was, it was so interesting because we were doing this in succession with all of these characters, where they would come into the makeup room, into the makeup trucks, and you know, Richard, Richard, we found the length of his. They all had wigs, and we all found the right length and the, picked the right spectacles. and And it's a it's a long process. You try this on, you try that on, you keep trimming. You look, you hold it up higher and lower, and you really derive at it. And of course, we were drawing from tons of Dylan stuff. Heath had a wig. They all had wigs. I mean, they all. Um, and they were very carefully modeled after Dylan at different times. And we had to pick different facial hair for, for Heath to, to determine different periods in his, in his um, life with Claire. And, yeah, hair is essential. <laughs> uh, can you talk about um, Kate Blanchett. Of all the different Dylans, probably when we think Bob Dylan, the first Dylan we think of is right exactly from that period, that sort of definitive period, um, mid-'60s. And it's such a masterstroke of casting. So what was your thought process in casting her? Did you think of actors, male actors? No, no. No, the concept from the beginning, the original idea was that it would be an actress who would play the role of Jude. Um, I didn't have a specific actress in mind when I wrote it, but I knew it had to be a woman playing that role as a man. And it was about, really, it was really just about Dylan's physical state in 65, 66. Something that I feel, because it's one of those... Famous moments that, have, as you say, are so familiar. They lose their sense of shock and risk 
And what an audience, a Herman Hermit's audience of 1965 must have felt like, or even yeah. just an audience that followed his folk, his, his protest period, suddenly seeing this spidery figure on stage, this, this you know, uh, you know, whatever, this and strange androgyny, not a, an androgyny that you, we would see in Bowie, but an androgyny that you might more associate with Patti Smith uh, 10 years later. Um, but something completely unmasculine and unestablished for the time. And I, and I just felt like that strangeness had to be. In, in general, the, all, my, my kind of pact with myself with this film was to preserve the genuine weirdness of Dylan. And, and that it's forgotten because, or it's, you, you forget it because he's so famous and he's yeah. so, he's such a, you know, whatever, yeah. he's, he's it. <clears throat> and t- talk about those scenes, playing those scenes with Kate Blanchett, what, what that was like. They're so critical in the film and it's such an uh, well, I, amazing I, I, I can probably story. better describe the feeling of working with her by describing when I first saw her working, which was we, we were shooting in this great big cavernous kind of steel mill with big puddles of grease and muck for two or three hundred yards in one direction and a hundred feet high and two hundred feet wide. It's a, it's a big characterless chasm. And it's, you know, it, even in a room this size, it's not easy to create a vibe. And you walk into a place like that that's the size of a stadium with a roof and it's pitch black, and you can't create a vibe. And yet I walked in, and 100 yards away, you could see there's this little tiny speck of activity. And I got about 100 feet away, and I could feel that something was happening. Something, there's some kind of electrical thing going on between the crew and... And the crew was literally going. <laughs> and, and pointing at the artist, you know, and, and I could, and I, you could feel that everybody felt they were witnessing something really, really special. And, and it was like that from, for every moment watching her, you know, I mean, you know, when she's at the craft service table, she's mellow and talking about whatever and having a coffee, but it's kind of like, do you remember how weird it was when she'd come back at the end of the day out of her costume? Like, and who are you? Like, who's the blonde chick yeah, the camera? <laughs> yeah. It was just like, yeah. I, I, literally, there was just no connection between It wasn't two. like even like working with Kate, Yeah, really. No. Mm-hmm. Not that I've worked with her before, but, it's, <laughs> but it was like working with Bob Dylan from 35 years ago. What was so interesting is the thing she was doing the day Bruce first saw her was the projection scenes that you see it was the it was the background material that we needed to collect for projections in that one scene in particular where with the projections on the wall and one thing we were, we had this long we had this concept i had this concept of the three white walls with the spider you see the spider moving right. across and this and there were synchronized projectors that would connect mm-hmm. the same image bend the same image around the frame mm-hmm. those three frames and one idea and we did shoot it but we didn't end up using it because it took too long was to have jude in almost a silhouette <clears throat> with a very wide lens moving ac- also walking across all three and so and that was the very first thing I had Kate do we had a big long seamless stretched out and w- basically what it was is that she was doing she was reducing the character to its uh, it distilling it down to its core kind of physical abstract element almost doing a dance of what the character was now every actor I think works from the body and find some physicality as a kind of root to who the character is. But this was asking the actor to go all the way there 
and to basically do away with everything else yeah. on the very first moment. Did she get the voice quickly? I mean, that's amazing what she's doing with her voice. She did. Yeah. It was. It was. Yeah. Um, they all did. They all did really. They were all inundated with the material and the, yeah. and the Ben Wishaw does something with his because he's English, hmm. and the way he incorporates Dylan's syntax and and, and meter of speech, uh, not syntax but the the tenor and the and the yeah. rhythms of his speech, the way he sort of gather up syllables by the end of a sentence, is so understated and so subtle, but it's in his all of his uh, performance. It's really it was remarkable. How did you sort of think about the idea of, of using real Dylan and then being more free and, and imaginative. For example, with the music, there's, it was very important to have the real Dylan voice, but yeah. then there's um, sort of covers and new versions, and that whole, it's a very big question, I'm sure. For you. Yeah. Well, what's funny is the things that you don't even really probably notice that I think work so well in that, like, Kate's obviously singing to Steve Malcolmus's voice from Pavement in the performances of. I mean, he's, she's not, in other words, she's not singing to Dylan. She's not lip syncing Dylan. Now, if she lip synced to Dylan, the illusion would be gone. It would completely go yeah. away. And many, perhaps, other vocalists as well. It needed to have a voice that matched her frame. Yeah. And because it's his voice, and because it's these covers that both uh, come out of the sort of spirit of those originals, but also have adapted them and changed them um, and fictionalized them you know within the film it works even better and I think the illusion is more complete and you kind of yeah. keep going back to Dylan but actually it's completely circuitous the way we get to the core of Dylan but um, I think the difference between quoting Dylan more directly and indirectly in a way the film does what every biopics do which is blend uh, the great moments the famous moments the moments that we remember Ray Charles in a photograph with the private moments, the moments that we haven't ever seen of Johnny Cash in the bedroom with his wife or whatever. And most biopics do this with yeah. a continuous narrative and try to make it seem seamless from yeah. fact to fiction. And this one does that as well. It goes into places that we've never seen depictions of Dylan per se, although really almost everything in the film, we did have so much documentation. All of Robbie, all of Billy comes from stuff that was specific and concrete but it just separates them into these but you kind of play around <laughs> with the idea that we can like capture the moments of inspiration like when when um you know he says just like a woman and it's like oh that's how that song got created but you're sort of playing around with the whole notion of what a biopic can do yeah yeah but but i also think that in that one scene he's basically he's being sarcastic he's saying you know she's he, thanks for stepping in and and she did step in and she got rid of the culprit and he's sarcastic and says yeah just like a woman he's using a cliche but he's actually using it against the which is right. what he does in the song yeah. people got very upset about the use of that cliche even though he is really playing with it yeah which you've been known to do also <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to give you a chance to talk about the editing I mean it's such an amazing piece of editing and I wonder if um, and of course you work with uh, Jay Rabinowitz I mean you lost a great collaborator Jim Lyons yeah um, but um, could you just talk about that if there were many different versions and what the editing process was like? It's funny. It, it seems like a film that, that might have been conceived largely in the editing room. And 
the, the editing was is such an essential part of any movie, and it was to this one. But it wasn't something that changed the structure of mm-hmm. the film. If anything, it I think it relaxed the the intercutting that was actually in the script. The script had more intercutting between the stories, and we actually uh, simplified it and kept the introductions to each of the stories longer, so you could get into them more. But that said, the it was more of, it was more all of these intricacies and yeah. how to weave the music. It was it was rhythmic and it was uh, sensual and visceral. I think all of the things that the editing really focused on, and uh, that we both worked really hard on. We kind of had to work round the clock because we went over budget in, in the in the schedule. We lost like two million dollars in in fees and and um, penalties because of overtime costs that somehow just came out of the editing we were supposed yeah. to sort of make up for it so we kind of had the editing table going 24 hours a day so it was quite a quite a feat uh, one of the things about far from heaven that that became clear was that even though you were like setting this film in the 50s and it seemed on the surface to be about the 50s it was sort of clear that it was about the time we're living in now and it seems like um, that must be a lot of what this film is about for you kind of you finding your place as an artist and the whole question of how do we deal with this america now that we're living in where the you know you can the question of what freedom is all about is a big question. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I, I, I wasn't, <clears throat> although I was actually, I identified maybe most while writing the script with the character Claire, who's the Charlotte Gainsbourg character, mm. because I was really? stuck in my house until Oren came to rescue me, the Oren and my yeah. co-writer, and make it fun again. <laughs> um, I was stuck inside with this amazing job that I'd, been allowed to take on, you know, yeah. but the, the Bush-Cheney wars were exploding on te- the television, and I felt like I was studying, the, like one hand was reaching out to this distant planet, the 1960s, and the other hand was reaching out to what was happening on television in front of me, yeah. and it just felt so strange, and I felt, you know, we all probably felt so, so, I mean, we, we've been going through a, you know, an unbelievable period over the last seven years, and it's really, I think it's so profoundly shattering that it's almost impossible to know what is happening in the while it's happening it, it's it's gonna take like the 60s a lot of time to figure out yeah. what's what's going wrong and how to set it back on course which i guess is why you can look back to poets like bob dylan or alan ginsburg yeah or somebody like walt whitman to yeah ask a question like what what does it mean to what does it America? mean <laughs> but i also felt like i wasn't doing anything specific about talking about today. I was really focusing on the past in this particular period. And I, I, I mean, it's all, I, I think it's all there. It's almost like I also wasn't trying to create a tapestry of, of, of American sensibility and artistic form or whatever. And yet that's what Dylan's life in all of its components really does add up to in my mind. But that came with the result of, adhering to or addressing the specifics. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask Bruce um, in, in front of Todd Haynes to talk about what it, what he's like as a director because there, there's so many great um, <laughs> I mean this Ooh. is a film so much about performance and he's so many so, he's, <laughs> he's a really super positive force on the set. Very, very up and willing to talk about anything that you might drag in, any idea but but mostly he's he's so steeped in the in the history that we're, we're there trying to recreate, uh, admittedly through the prism of your vision and through the kaleidoscope of Dylan's ever-changing life. But uh, um, 
the vibe on the set was always really positive, joyous. And I think that comes through in the movie, too. There's a lot of, you know, it's an effervescent movie in a lot of ways. And, and I think that's in large part because of Todd's vibe on the set. That's fair, don't you think? <laughs> it's not. I mean, the, the thing. I mean, I. It is. I, it is fair. You know. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. <clears throat> Take yes for an answer. But and it must have been a very pressurized production. You had like seventy yeah. locations to shoot in forty-nine days. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Um, yeah. It was really, really hard. It was super tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was. It was. But it's kind of like the way you know the parents hide from their kids that yeah. you know the rent isn't. Here. Yeah, you yeah, know what I mean? Really, you really just say, is. no, there's dinners on the table and it's all going to be good. And all the actors are going, oh, goody, I'm so hungry, you know? <laughs> and they, they don't know that, you know, the, around the corner, the bankers are putting the last bead on the, on the abacus, you know? I mean, I think directors... <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I don't, I'm just an actor. I don't know what was happening. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think all directors ha- have a, uh, some weird mechanism, some unnatural mechanism to compartmentalize fear and to put it into a separate container, you know, and, and because you have to just keep forging ahead. And probably a lot of directors also have to be really good actors and keep that cheery disposition <laughs> and try to, you know, just try to make people feel like not only do you know exactly what you're doing at all times, but also make them feel secure in what they're doing. Um, and that does take a, 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 a kind of sort of forced will, and which makes it even more exhausting and, and hard where you have to sort of be a machine in a way to pull through that. And you made this without, ha- you didn't have a distributor at the time, you, I mean, so. No, we didn't have a U.S. distributor. We had yeah. great, you know, the whole spirit of the film started so great with Dylan saying yes, these actors signing on so quickly, yeah. us getting really robust pre-sales at Cannes in 05, and then all of a sudden everything came to a crashing halt when we came back to the States to try to get U.S. distribution, and then like it was a year of knocking on doors and going to every single studio, and you know me pitching this to like every uh, single studio, and um, that was hard. It all started to feel, you know, more doubtful. Uh, Unfortunately, we have to we have to end. I want to um, just thank you both and congratulations again on a masterful piece of work. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.